Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of the Sustainability and Climate Podcast. As usual, I'm your host, Labake, and I have with me Toby. Toby, how are you doing? How's life? I would deny that part. It's not as usual. I'm the one usually doing as usual, but yeah, I give you that pass for today. <laughs> Hi everyone, Toby's here. I'm good. I'm all right. Um, Labake decided to do the intro today. I stole my line, but it is what it is. Yeah, Labake, I'm doing well. How have you been? <laughs> <laughs> I've been good. I've been good. Um, settling back into, I always say September is like Q4, but technically it's not. Um, but essentially the final sprint of the year, um, finally in the ember months. Yeah. Um, yeah, just kind of getting ready. Cool, cool, cool. Yeah. So what's been going on in the news? You know, I always come with the juicy topics, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but before we go into the news, I just want to update our listeners on the recently concluded UN General Assembly. Um, yep. You know, uh, one of our last episodes, we talked um, about the General Assembly and our expectations. And the question is, did it meet our expectations? No. Um, but I think we're already used to it. World leaders coming together um, with a large convoy, street getting blocked in new york and then rushing to the general assembly but yeah i think it's um at the end of the day it was a good one um i think the team for this year was about building rebuilding trusts and reigniting global solidarity did that happen well i'll leave that for our listeners to decide but at the end of the day they were i think one highlight for me was the the climate summit that happened um the climate ambition summit that happened and I think one thing that the General Assembly pronounced was the urgency for world leaders, for everyone to come together to accelerate action and technically mobilize the finances that is needed to tackle this climate crisis. Um, some, some leaders were not there. Uh, I won't go into that for now. But I think it is important that for issues like this, we need all leaders to come together because this is a, this is a discussion that concerns every country no countries um, getting um, being getting escaped from the old climate crisis. So I think at the end of the day, uh, I'm looking forward to what COP28 brings. Uh, a lot of resolutions that will be made, and I'm just looking forward to that. But yeah, I think the 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 general assembly, just like the normal general assembly, was general assembly. Um, but looking forward to <laughs> yeah, because at the end of the day, you just see these people come. And both, yeah, that's not what this podcast is all about. But yeah, the General Assembly was a good one. And looking forward to to the conversations that followed after the General Assembly. But yeah. Yeah. I think another thing I saw was that, you know, there were more commitments to accelerate the SDGs, which I think in our last yeah. episode or the one before that, we'd spoken about how, um, you know, accelerated action is definitely needed for us to be able to meet anywhere close yeah. to, you know, the target set. So I think that was interesting. Well, well, can I really say it was interesting to see? Because I feel like there's always renewed commitment at every one of these conferences. Exactly. And I guess it's the action, it's the action that comes after that, that would be, you know, would be the Yeah, it just, it just took the words out um, of my mouth. Because for me, it's not about making the commitments, <laughs> but making sure that those commitments turn into action. And making sure that the right yeah. things are done because it is it, it, it's a normal thing you see world leaders or people coming together to make decisions but what are the next steps are they, are they taking the right step in making sure that those decisions are not just decisions on paper 
but are implemented. So I think implementation is the next big thing that we need to we need to look out for and to see what comes out of it. But yeah, looking forward to that. And another big news that I want to share yeah. uh, is for the. Um, mm-hmm. I read I read a very interesting article. Um, I think this week that talked about. Uh, the, the the title for the article was Rishi Sunak and King Charles may be heading for a clash on climate action, and you know um, yeah. Rishi Sunak was not at the he didn't attend the UN General Assembly for reasons best no, known to him, but I think the recent and see the the King King Charles was in um, Paris recently and all his engagement recently had been about climate action, but seeing that your Prime Minister yeah he's super in, is going yeah. in a different direction. But it's just, it's just so funny, and I'm looking forward to what comes out of that. Because at the end of the day, if the royal engagement is really focused on strengthening the climate and the environment, but back home the government is moving in the reverse, and I think it's not a good thing to say. Because King Charles was in Paris, Prince William was in was in New York attending the climate summit, but the prime minister was sitting pretty so, in his office at number 10. To play the devil's advocate yeah. a little yeah. bit, and yes, I am on the you know environmental yeah. side and all of those things, and I was reading in the news as well um, that Rishi Sunak is kind of extending deadlines for the ban on you know new gasoline and diesel yeah. cars and you know kind of backtracking on some of the um, ambitious em- environmental goals that the UK government has yeah. set. Um, and one of his comments essentially said um, that the agenda is still to meet the net zero target by 2050, but in a more proportionate yeah. way. Um, and just to plead the, the devil's advocate for a little bit, mm-hmm. right? I think there's a pragmatism and practicality that is required in, in, in government action. Mm. And I think that might be a little bit the discord that we see with, you know, the royal family and and the the you know downing yeah. street right and what kind of comes out for that there's a practicality in kind of running the yeah. numbers and like really figuring out what is the cost to the everyday english you know citizen without being too political on this podcast we try <laughs> yeah. you know we, we don't want to kind of veer into that a little yeah. bit but i think you know there's a prag- pragmatism that accompanies some of these decisions where we make a lot of these commitments, but we actually have to think about what is the cost to the everyday person? Like, how is that changing? I mean, there's a cost of living crisis. Has nobody yeah, else kind of yeah, figured but, this out? But also, don't you think that this decision will actually make other countries to say, okay, if this so-called superpower is making, uh, is taking a U-turn on climate policies, then we that don't have the resources, we believe they have the resources to be able to achieve these things, but we that don't have the resources, if they are backtracking, we too should backtrack. No, 100%. I do agree that it's, 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 it doesn't look good. Uh, I think the media also has a very interesting role to play in, excuse me, reporting factually what these backtrack, you know, targets, backtracked targets are, what the real changes are and the repercussions of those changes in the roadmap to meeting Agenda 2025, right? Because it could be a, it could be a left turn rather than a U-turn, if that makes any kind of sense. And this is not me by any means supporting the UK government. I mean, I don't know them like that. <laughs> but I'm just nice. saying that... <laughs> I'm just saying that there's, there's, you know, potentially a an approach that might not be a complete backtrack and that is trying to be considerate 
of you know the everyday UK citizen because I mean I've had conversations with a lot of everyday people where they talk about the cost of you know the U-less zone and you know driving um, diesel cars and not being able to afford you know so there's there's you know those kind of thought thoughts processes integration shall I say that you know one has to think about but I, I think that's that's where I'm going to stop on you know the political conversation um but then another thing i wanted to highlight before i do do that uh, <laughs> is the oil field license yeah did you see that that one yes yeah. uh, is it the Apparently one the, the uk government the not see rosebank field yes exactly yes yes so i mean things like that i can understand why you know there's a lot of backlash um to that i did see a comment about saying you know as much as we're transitioning to a cleaner energy kind of world we still need kind of i guess the dirty fuels to until we get to that point where we can run you know 100 percent on renewables um and so i don't know it's interesting it's really interesting i would love a deep dive into kind of the data behind it global data behind it like when can we actually stop using all fossil fuels globally what would we need to generate on the renewable sides to be able to do that like what is the i think we did an episode on this where we did the economic cost of climate yeah, change yeah. but it didn't it didn't veer too deeply into that, but it would be really interesting to explore. Um, that being said, I'm, I like to play devil's advocate a lot, but I don't support any of these things. I just need to clarify that. <laughs> okay. Thanks. If you say so. <laughs> well, yeah, I, 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 I also, I also want to share... We're supposed to be partners I also want to share light on... <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you know when I say it, you have, I'm meant to say it. Because at the end of the day, it is important that our leaders do the right thing. It is important that our leaders don't just ignore and say, oh, yes, in as much as they are all concerned about the economy, but also look at the implication on its citizens, right? And I think that is one thing that every government should, should consider. Um, because if the different groups, environmental groups are complaining about this thing, you should, definitely these things have an effect and these are the things that we are we are preaching we are championing for but seeing a government coming to say oh yes um even as much as they still believe that the uk will eat the nigeria target in 2050 but at the end of the day i think decisions like this will make people wonder if the government is taking the right direction but yes, this podcast is not about politics. This podcast is called the Sustainability and Climate Podcast. Mm-mm. And we will stick to that. And yep. one thing I also want to highlight was the Global Citizens Festival that happened in New York. Shout out to Global yes. Citizens, which Global Citizens around the world took 3.3 million commitments um, to unlock millions Love of it. funding for education, for climate change. In the rain as well. Yeah, oh, brah. It rained all day uh, as early as, <laughs> I think, four, four or five hours before the start time. Global citizens were already yeah. rushing down to the venue for them to open. And I think so. that shows the commitment um, that these people have in making the world a better place. And we wish and we hope that one day our leaders will have that same commitment where it's citizens want <gasps> action and they take the actions that need to be taken. But yeah, shout out to Global Citizens for an amazing 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 festival 
Awesome. On that note, today's episode is a power episode. It's a great one. Super, super exciting. We have a very special guest, Rafi Adolston. Um, he's a global sustainability lead at a big tech firm with prior stints at Deloitte and the UK government. I think he worked a number of years in the education space, worked with the SDGs for a number of, ye- number of years as well. He has decades of experience in sustainability and technology and brings us a rich conversation um, about driving sustainability through digital technology. Um, yeah. I'm really, really excited about this episode. We had a really great conversation and I can't wait for you guys to listen and share your thoughts. All right, ladies and gentlemen, please join us in welcoming our special guest, the one and only Rafi. Hello guys, welcome to another episode of the Sustainability and Climate Podcast. Today, we have an interesting and amazing guest who, trust me, listeners, is going to bring a different dynamic to this conversation. We have the one and only Rafi. Hi, Rafi. How are you doing today? How's it going? Great. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. And, and for, for us, we know you already, but I, I'm sure our listeners will be itching to know more about you and your background. Can you just please share your background with our listeners and who Rafi is, what you do? Hey. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, so I'm a climate sustainability strategy professional i help companies think about the way in which they can maximize their positive impact on on the environment primarily through the use of technology uh, and how technology is a driving force for a positive change in our society or should be <laughs> awesome awesome and when you hear the word climate change when you hear the word sustainability what's that first thing that comes to your mind first thing is challenge big 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 challenge you know we live in a really difficult situation right now it's like you know it, the, the scale and magnitude and the urgency of the problem cannot be underestimated. And we all, and that's amazing why you guys are doing this podcast to really share the message, get people talking about this topic. It's absolutely critical that everybody thinks about how in their own context, in their own setting, their own jobs, in their personal life, they can think about their contribution to solving this, the most important problem that we have today, uh, which is the climate crisis. And, and let me ask you this very interesting question. Now, we have the 17 Sustainable Development Goals, and these goals are meant to be achieved by 2030. Do you think climate change can be achieved by 2030? Well, can, can we meet the terms of the Paris Agreement? Of course we can, but it's going to take a massive <laughs> turnaround in many aspects yeah. of our society from you know, all parts of, of the system, from government and regulators, investors, yeah. consumers, us as individuals. You know, every part, of this, every part of our system is going to need to really transform, and that's... You know, one of the reasons why I'm involved in technology, which is a, an enabler of transformation. And that is what needs to happen for us to meet those really challenging and, and, and urgent need aims. So we had a really interesting conversation in one of our last episodes, Toby and myself, where he asked this question and I'd already started smiling when he brought up the question. <laughs> and he asked me this question, if, you know, the SDGs or the goals of the SDGs could be met or even the Paris Agreement by 2030, which is seven years away. And I said, I don't think so considering the data that we currently have and the pace at which the climate transition is going, rightly said, you know, the first thing you think about when you think about climate change is the challenge, the magnitude of the challenge of the transition. I'm very pessimistic about us being able to meet in the next seven years. 
However, I do think, you know, with conversations like this and a lot of work being done in policy with government, there is an opportunity for us to do better in the next seven years than we have in the past seven years. And so I think it's very interesting that you think we can. And I'm wondering if you could share a little bit more about how quickly we can accelerate action to be able to achieve that. And maybe, you know, kind of combat my, my slightly pessimistic view. <laughs> <laughs> so I think there's room, there's room for healthy pessimism and pessimism you know, can try, you know, can share the chat, you know, can enable people to understand the scale of the problem. Um, but there's no point being pessimistic. It's not going to help anybody. You know, every mm. every kilogram of carbon we take out of the atmosphere will make you know the, the future environment slightly less 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 catastrophic. So you know we should all be working as hard as we can to support you know whatever positive changes we can make. My area, as I've mentioned, is technology, and I think there's three ways in which technology can really be used to accelerate the change. First of all, using data to track progress. You know, we can only me- we can only manage what we can measure, and it is technology that's going to enable all of us to be able to understand, you know, the impacts and the scale of the impacts that we make through our activities and, and through the activities of the services that we use through the companies that we talk, we use and we, we engage. That could be anything and, any, and anywhere. And technology is really critical to that. The second way in which we can drive change is through optimizing, for making things work better, faster, cheaper, you know, quicker. And it's optimization that will reduce the need for resources, reduce our reliance on the energy uh, and they, you know, the the physical materials that we need to do things. Um, so how do we, you know, ensure that as we continue to, you know, hopefully grow as a society, we do it in the most optimized way. And the third way in which technology can hopefully make the change needed is through transformation, uh, and that is about imagining how to do things differently. How do we imagine the future of manufacturing or the future, you know, of of any industry of food of the energy sector? where we're using the power of technology, particularly AI, but also things like machine learning, but things like satellite imaging or robotics and AR and VR as tools that will enable us to then do things in a way that are more, you know, that that are commensurate with our ambition to live in a, you know, self, in a healthy, sustainable, equitable, livable planet. I think that perfectly leads me to, you know, one of the first questions, which would be like, can you share a little bit more about your journey and what motivated you to, work on sustainability sustainability within the digital technology space yeah absolutely so i'll tell you i would go all the way, way back i was brought up <laughs> in a strong jewish community in leeds where responsibility is really the center of our heritage like taking responsibility for yourself and for your community and i found my grandfather he was a, a leader of our community he founded our synagogue and he showed me from an early age what it means to be like a positive agent for change what it means to take responsibility so because of that, I always really wanted a values-based career. Um, and so I, out of university, I joined the civil service into the Department for Education, the various roles in government. Um, and then after you know, six, seven, seven, seven or eight years, I moved to Deloitte to, to work on sustainability strategy or public sector initially consulting, and then moved from there into corporate impact consulting and looking at the SDGs and corporate purpose and, and, and how big companies can you know, use the framework of the SDGs and the ambitions of the SDGs as a means of um, helping them to be successful. And through doing that, through looking at the SDGs through that lens, we started to really focus on the climate and looking at, you know, climate as the number of all the SDGs of which is important, particularly education, which is one that I was passionate about. Climate is a really urgent, pressing challenge. And I sort of fell into the technology world by virtue of a couple of projects that I, that I was really lucky to be involved in 
uh, with big technology companies and with some some industry bodies looking at the role of technology and driving impact against the SDGs and starting to really understand the different mechanisms by which technology can affect positive change and also thinking about some of the negative impacts as well that we need to also be mindful of which maybe is another part of the conversation and then from there i went on to work in big tech and work in a big tech company now so that's kind of a short run through the journey i suppose <laughs> yeah and and for our listeners Rafi is also a trustee at the jw3 community uh, which the jewish community that i mentioned earlier and talking about technology how do you think young people can use technology in driving conversations around the SDGs, around climate change, around sustainability. Yeah, absolutely. Like the sort of the, the first, you know, in that research paper that I just mentioned, the sort of the first mechanism, the first way in which technology can help us is by allowing us to connect, providing us a means of connection and communication. Uh, and that's one of the wonderful things about, you know, the world that we live in today. Obviously, there's a lot of downsides with social media and, and some of the, the challenges around sort of mass communication, but we focus a bit too much of that rather than the positive, which is about be able to share ideas, be able to build communities, do things like this, which really are, you know, a, a means of acceleration that weren't available to, to, you know, to me as a little kid and to future, future previous generations. So absolutely really important. And, and uh, as a leader in this technology industry, what are the challenges and opportunities do you see in the past towards greater sustainability? I think you've got to split it into two topics. There's the, there's the reducing negative impacts. And there's, there are some big negative impacts in technology, maybe not so in other heavy emitting industries, but we need to talk about those. And that's from a sustainability perspective, but also from a sort of more social environment, social perspective, particularly, for example, social media challenges. And the second conversation is maximizing the positive, the positive impacts, how to use technology in a way that can drive positive change. And we can talk about examples there of things we're already seeing, you know, whether that's satellite imaging to sort of track the use of track deforestation to track from tackle deforestation or you know tools and using factories used to optimize use, to optimize the, the use of, of resourcing and how they manufacture things you know widgets to cars or we're using you know digital twins to reimagine new whole supply chains and re rework logistics centers you know, these are all really amazing opportunities that that you know need to be explored considered you know spread and scaled so, so I want to quickly touch on, on something really important that you said that sustainability is almost in two parts, right? Reducing the negative impacts and maximizing the, you know, the positives. And just based off of that, how, how can we use digital technology or how can we think about reducing some of the negative impacts of digital technology in the sustainability space? So one thing in a lot of clients that I speak with, because I work with um, the tech sector in Africa. And a lot of them are trying to think about, you know, what the negative impacts for themselves are that they can work on reducing or minimizing. Uh, and so if you could talk to us a little bit, because I know you work in big tech, if you could talk to us a little bit about some of the negative impacts that, you know, digital technology does have in the sustainability space and the transition to renewable energy, energy efficiency within that space as well. Um, and then I guess we can kind of touch in a little bit around the positive impact and creating positive um, outcomes or changes. Yeah, absolutely. So if you think about technology is the, the stack of technology and the, the bottom of the stack is your is cloud computing typically and, and that where you, your use of the internet rests. And then above that, you have some software and above that, you have the devices on which the software is used. And then above that, you have the users of those devices. You think about that as a sort of very simplified version. At the bottom of the stack in terms of sort of cloud computing and the servers that you might use, there's, there's two challenges there. There's the energy that's used to power the servers 
and the refrigeration around that keeps them cool. And then there's the embodied carbon in the materials that are the actual practical chips, the silicon chips and the steel and the plastics that are used to sort of house those chips in the servers. So the energy that you use to power the power data centers or to power your server, you know, increasingly that's becoming renewable, that is renewable. And there are areas around the world where it's 100% renewable. You know, we need the energy transition to happen as, as fastly and, and as fast and as broadly as possible to, for that sake, to have everybody else as well. But there are parts of the world where it's faster or slower. That's a major challenge. In terms of the materials and the chips, again, part of that's connected to energy transition because a lot of the chips that are made are made in areas of the world where there is less availability of renewable energy, which means that the embodied carbon in those chips are quite high. So, you know, we need to work on that and figure out ways of using chip, keeping chips to work for longer and make sure that they're made in a way, produced in a way that is, you know, reduces emissions, that low emissions. If you then work up the stack, you think about, you know, rising code and software that's, you know, tends to be quite low in terms of, of emissions, but, you know, obviously there's a big, there's a big feat, there's a big important role to play in terms of writing efficient code. And um, that means that you're using less resources when you're you know, using technology. And um, that's, that's another big area. Um, and then you move a bit further up to the devices. So, you know, you're on a laptop, you're on a phone, you know, we have personal choice about you know, what we choose to use and buy and the questions we ask of our suppliers or the people, companies that we buy from. And that's a really evolving space where you know, companies start to look at circular models of of devices or looking at, you know, different types of materials that are, that are low carbon or, or reduced plastic. And then the final area is really your usage. So as a user of technology, how do you use your technology in a way that's responsible? You know, how do you, if you've got a laptop, how you, you know, what energy you're using to charge, to power your house that's charging your laptop is a part of the, part of the whole system, but also what you're doing with that technology. And maybe that's the segue into the next conversation, which is how we're using the internet and machine learning and AI and all these tools in a way that will help us to meet the challenges of our That was a very in-depth explanation, which I really loved. And it it kind of made me think about another thing that I'm always thinking about is the resource cost of the climate transition. And you touched on that a little bit around the materials and the areas of the world that we're getting these materials for the devices. And how can we ensure sustainability across that entire kind of chain? But we're not going to touch too much on that today, but it was just, you know, it sparked that, that thought. Yeah. The, the, the whole conversation about rare minerals and, you know, lithium and batteries, and that's a huge conversation, especially in the EV space. That's yeah. a massive topic. Yeah. yeah. It, it would be interesting to explore eventually one of these days, but let's, let's put a pin in that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so you've worked in sustainability for a number of years and how has your corporate understanding and prioritization of sustainability evolved over the years? I know from my understanding, you started as a military speedwriter up to being a leader in the tech, how has that helped you along along the way? Yeah, I suppose my experience in the public sector has been really valuable in sort of understanding how complicated our system is. You know, you think about the kind of the idea of power, who has power, right? Who can control what happens? And, you know, we sit in a minister's office, which I did for many years, looking at the sort of constraints they have in terms of policy making. You know, they might have the best idea, they, you know, they might have the grandest vision, but they have to sort of get it through their party, get it through parliament, you know, get the civil service and the other sort of the officials sort of to find a way of actually activating this. And all the whole way, the people are trying to knock them down and, and stop them from doing what they want to do. So, you know, even the people in theory who are in power, you know, have lots of constraints. And then they're looking to, you know, different parts of the market to say, well, you know, business should be doing this or, you know, consumers should be doing that or investors should be doing this. And what it really shows is, you know, how important everybody's role is when it comes to facilitating change, 
change. The other thing, though, sort of kind of the other way around is actually how quickly change can happen. You know, so from a political perspective, you know, if you see a, a change of government, it's sort of the most powerful thing is actually the manifesto before the election. If that has, you know, r- radical new ideas and new policies in, those are things that then actually could become reality, have a, have a momentum behind them. And that, you know, offers a, a guide, not just to government, but also to other parts of investors and to, and, and to companies and, and to consumers too. So you know, there is pos- potential for change, even though it, it can be very difficult. And, and taking those learnings into the corporate world, sort of think about like how can corporations interact with, you know, the system they operate in. I think this is a really interesting challenge that, this problem sustainability throws up in that in, traditionally organizations and businesses think of think of themselves as like individual actors right what how can they succeed like what do they need to do to be able to grow or to you know ensure their resilience and actually what the whole sustainability agenda has done is opened up business thinking to think about systems and think about their role in a system because no company can achieve net zero on their own you know they need their value they need their downstream their, their suppliers and their you know and their users to, to go on the journey with them and that means that they're thinking about their business in a completely different way to they're used to, to the, to the way in which they're used to. And, and that maybe is a bit more similar to how government and public sector organizations think about, which is the whole stakeholder map, the whole, the whole user, you know, the whole, the whole system. So I, I've definitely seen that change. I've also seen the change over the years in, in the maturity of corporate response, um, to this challenge. So there's maybe sort of three stages that most businesses go on, you know, that supported them on the, on, across, you know, the years on these stages, which, Starting with, you know, report requirements, you know, that's the first stage. What do I have to do? And fortunately, there's more and more things that companies have to do. I'm sure you've talked about, you know, the regulation, the change that TCFT is about climate risk or about CSRD, the European European, uh, reporting requirements that are coming in now, really add it up in the ante on companies to do more in terms of reporting and to be transparent in what they're doing. But that's really just phase one. Phase two is then acting on those in, on that information in a way that reduces their own risks and reduces their negative impacts. So if they're being forced to, tr- to report on or choosing to report on climate risk, what do they actually do about that? You know, what do they actually do about, you know, thinking about the problems they have in their, in their, you know, th- their supply chain or in their, how they operate their business? Or if they, if they are reporting now their scope two emissions, like what are they going to do to reduce those emissions to zero? And if they are reporting, you know, to SBTI, I'm sure we've talked about all these different types of frameworks and, and actors. But the third area that companies are slow, are just starting to get to is really about the opportunity space. You know, having done what the requirement, having looked at sort of optimization, mitigating risks. The third area, and this is the space that, you know, the tech sector is really good at talking about and which we need everybody to be thinking about is what does, you know, good, is it possible to achieve good growth? What does it mean to be serving the transition, serving the needs of the new, of the, the you know, of a new era, a sustainable era. What does what do this? What are the solutions that are needed for the future, and how can we as an organisation provide those solutions and be successful for ourselves and for the planet as a result? Uh, and that's a really you know that is really the whole game, the whole exercise, and that's why again tech's really important in being an enabler of those solutions. Um, yeah, we're really excited. During the conversation, you talked about the corporate response, and you also talked about tech. And for our listeners, also Rafi used to sit on. The, the Climate Council for, for Turkey UK. Looking from the government side of things, from your lens, do you think the government is doing enough to address or talk about climate change? Uh, I don't want to get too political here, but um, no. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I think this week we just had an announcement sort of you know, rowing back on EVs and rowing back on some yeah. of the, the commitments on, on home heating. And, you know, clearly anybody that with a 
commitment to climate. I know easily there's an announcement also about a new oil field that's been been given a license. Yeah. Anyone with a commitment to you know try to address the climate crisis knows that these things are incredibly serious and incredibly challenging to meeting the aims of, of net zero. And anybody that tries to pretend otherwise is you know isn't being honest. Um, yeah. Now that's not to say that there aren't valid reasons for you know changing policies and doing things differently. You know there are arguments that can be made for you know, how these things might be done in the most effective way, but they need to be done. They need to be done fast. So. Yeah. Extending the timetable to me doesn't sound like a very effective way of of, of tackling the climate crisis. Um, but you know there there are lots of ways in which politicians and governments can demonstrate you know real seriousness in this agenda that doesn't necessarily need to cost people money. And then first in the short term, it's it's about holding organisations like you know corporate feet to the fire. It's about asking people you know for example we have now a new set of requirements coming in for corporates on transition plans, which is about what actually being transparent. What actually are they going to do? to meet net zero when in the past you know you sort of say we're going to meet net zero you know cool we have to believe and trust you that you're going to do it now that plan is going to be actually transparent which is great you know how can we accelerate those things how can we hold companies and other actors to to account for the things that they, they're trying to achieve but yeah i i think i, I presume your question is about this week and, yeah, yeah. i can't imagine anyone's particularly happy, listening is going to be happy about that yeah, two very interesting points that I quickly wanted to touch on. One is about, and this is the most recent one you made, about the role of the private sector and how we can incentivize consumers without increasing their financial burden, which I think is a really, really interesting topic. And I've written it down and one that I would personally like to research and have like larger conversations about, because as you rightly said, you know, setting policies that increase the financial burden of the everyday consumer who is experiencing a lot of the crisis that we are, you know, kind of experiencing globally isn't necessarily the answer. Um, And so I think it, it would be really interesting to see how, you know, we can get the private sector, get corporates involved in creating incentive incentives for consumers to move to more sustainable kind of solutions without increasing their financial burden. Yeah. So just on that, I mean, there's, there's two there's two sides to that conversation. There's the just there's the just transition conversation, which is more about how you know one part of the world needs to help the other part of the world to accelerate the transition in a way that doesn't stop their growth, right? And that is. It's one of the most important conversations. I'm, I'm assuming you're exploring that a lot. That's one of the most important conversations about this whole agenda, you know. And there's lots of commitments to companies that countries have made that haven't yet been met, and that's really the main discussion that's happening at COP. Primarily, is about well, one of the main conversations at COP that's going to be happening soon is about how to enable the just transition. There's a second sort of conversation, which is one more that's a bit more UK centric, or you know, or in economies like ours, where you know, what does it mean to enable consumers to make choices like move to EVs or to have, you know, heat pumps um in their house that, you know, do require expenditure. Who should be account who should be taking who should be paying up for that? You know, is it is the government, is it individuals, you know, is there a partnership with business? Is there some form of, you know, you know, there are lots of exciting opportunities in terms of impact finance, which will enable these things to happen, you know, quickly and with like longer term payback. So but I would don't think you should try not I don't I wouldn't mix those two conversations up because they're, they're two very important very different but slightly distinct things yeah no very interesting and then the just transition conversation leads perfectly into the second point that i wanted to highlight which was i guess more largely around closing the gap between you know the mandatory response kind of moving from what regulations kind of mandating 
people to do around the, you know, SFDR and TCFD and all those um, different instruments. But then also moving to the opportunity side, which is the upside opportunity of the climate transition, where technology comes in to find kind of solutions to a lot of these challenges. And I and I say that in, in response to the just tran- transition, because I speak about this, I work in Africa, and I speak about this a lot with my clients and the people I work with, where the conversation is always, oh, we are disproportionately affected by, you know, climate change, and the cost of the transition is so high for us at the moment, and I kind of talk a lot about the upside opportunity, right? You could be solving challenges for the global community and there's a lot of opportunity to innovate in this space. Um, and so I, I kind of wanted to, to ask you that question, working in technology, what are some ideas, maybe not necessarily solution ideas, but like ideas in the technology space that could help think of, of the climate transition more as an opportunity than than the heavy burden that it that it is. I hope that question is clear. <laughs> yeah, no, no, yeah, that's great. No, and I suppose the way to sort of structure that, I'd think about the sort of types of solutions uh, where you have solutions that are focused on you know, ca- capturing and sharing data, solutions focused on optimizing operational challenges and solutions focused on transforming how things operate or doing things in a completely new way. And the market for these things is, you know, global. Uh, and the, the the benefit of technology, the benefit of especially of software based technology, digital technology, is that that is very easily shareable globally, um, and scalable globally. So if you know entrepreneurs and you know are, are looking at this space as sort of an opportunity, I think there is endless opportunity. Unfortunately, what that means is at the moment it's quite messy, especially in the the, the first bucket of tracking and monitoring and tracking. You know, there are loads and loads of startups looking at you know ESG data or you know carbon accounting software so you know at the, the moment that space is, is a bit is a bit messy how can you find a usp or something unique in that area my suggestion would be to find a, a real niche within a particular problem target area every different industry and subsector has some different but slight nuanced challenges um similar to the nuanced challenges around you know energy and heat and and mobility etc but they, 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 the way they operate in each sector is slightly different so can you find a way of solving a problem for that sector that then you can scale globally would be my, my suggestion. What, one of the projects that I was really excited to work on recently was the Earthshot Prize, which is uh, Prince William's and Dave Asperger's prize for, for the environment, all about optimism, showing innovation, highlighting you know global impacts from the diverse communities of, across different problems, different ways of operating. Some of those challenges, some of the winners and you know, they just announced the, the finalists for this year, some of them are digital solutions you know like tracking air pollution was one that i worked that i spoke to others are more physical like hydrogen electrolyzers that was another mm-hmm. one or new forms of plastic what was really amazing about earthshot prize is it just shows this idea of this optimism of what is possible if you innovate and think big and taking those ideas and putting them on the global stage is, is really incredible so i'd point to that as an as a means of inspiration for anyone who's thinking about trying to innovate in this area Awesome. Awesome. And just to like highlight as well, we did, my organization did a report on this in the tech space, particularly where we explored, because I don't know how much of African kind of startup ecosystem you follow, but there's a lot of innovation in the fintech space in, which is really important because, you know, finance is, is a ramp for, you know, kind of development, but we kind of highlighted that there are a lot of you know, looking as the looking at the SDGs as a framework, there are a lot of areas you know where innovation and technology could drive or could accelerate impact um, 
And so that was that was kind of the inspiration behind that question. But yeah, I think Toby has another question. He's looking at me. Yeah, I think no, and I just I just <laughs> well, wanted to just I think it's been an interesting conversation so far. Yeah. Um, thank you for your time, Rafi. And just in closing, what what is that message you like to drop to our listeners when it comes to regarding the importance of sustainability? What's that call to action that you want them to pick from this conversation? I suppose what I hope everybody thinks about is what they can do in their setting. You, know, you don't need to be Greta Thunberg. You know, you don't need to be a CEO of a major oil company. You know, in the world that you live in, in the job that you do, what's the one or two things you can do immediately? Sort of get people thinking about the changes positive you can make. And if everybody does that, then you know, we've got a good chance of, of, of realizing the, the aims that we have for you know, a brighter future. 100%. Awesome. awesome. I think that's Thank great. Thank you so much, Rafi. do you want to give the closing punchline today? <laughs> I don't have any punchline <laughs> quite as good as what you do. <laughs> so I'll let you take but- it. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, Rafi. And thank you so much to our listeners. And you know, for us, we try to give you the best engaging conversation, conversations that we inspire you to take action. And like I will always say, the world is in our hands for us to change. It is all left for us to shape it the way we want to shape it. And we'll have a pass to play. That's it, Lavake. You need to be like me. But yeah, thank you so much, guys, for joining us today. And thanks so much to Rafi. We look forward to seeing the amazing things that you do moving forward. And we can't wait to hear the many success stories that come out for me but thank you so much for coming on our podcast and we wish you all the best thank you so much Rafi thank you both so much